Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Anthony Fulmer. Um, most often you can find me um, volunteering in the audiovisual, so I, I back in the sound booth quite a bit. I'm a bit of a tech nerd if I'm not giving off those vibes strongly enough. So computers as well, occasionally, kind of just whatever needs done. Um, and so today we're going to talk about essentially what it comes down to is the human tendency to overcomplicate our relationship with God. Um, not only individually, but corporately as a body, right? And kind of some uh, troubles that some early churches had in that same vein as well. What kind of got me thinking about this is recently I was able to spend some time with uh, my two brothers. We were having like a boys' weekend for my older brother's 40th birthday. Um, yes, I am under 40. I, the hair doesn't do justice, but yes. And um, anyway, neither one of them are Christians. And so, as inevitably happens, as we're just kind of like sharing life together and really talking and kind of reconnecting with each other, eventually the topic of religion comes up. And those are always, you know, especially when you've got all that family history together, those conversations can be good or bad. And so I remember at a certain point, my more combative brother um, was sharing with me how he could never be a Christian because at the end of the day, there's no way he could prove that it was true at all. To which he continued to say, in fact, there's no way to prove anything is true to his standard of whatever would prove empirically what is truth. And so me, being a bit of a philosophy nerd, I said, oh, well, so that means you're a solipsist, which is a philosophical group of people who say that the only thing you can know for sure is that you exist. Everything else is up for question. Everything else is up for grabs. Am I hallucinating you guys out in this audience right now? Is the entire world that I live in an illusion that I've made myself and in my own brain? So I was sharing this with him, and he said, no, you don't understand, Anthony. I don't even have evidence that I exist. That was, that was where his thinking had got him. The conversation kind of took a downhill turn from there, and I'm uh, not... Pr- Proud to say, but I'm very happy that Christ didn't come back right immediately as I was telling him what I thought of that conclusion that he had come to uh, and the intelligence of people who would decide on such a thing in their personal lives. Um, But ultimately, it got me to thinking about being put in his shoes. What if I had lived my entire life up to this point without knowing Jesus? without believing in the gospel, anything like that. And somebody were to approach me with the gospel, trying to teach me about Christ, how would I react to it? I don't think it's possible to really know just because who I am and who I was before I became a Christian are completely different. So how would I react to things? I don't know. But I, I would say that because I've always been a pretty straightforward, pretty rational person, I think that one of the first things that I would do, one of the first questions I would have if somebody approached me with this is I would say, okay, uh, what's in it for me? Some flavor of that would be my first question. 
And I think that as an unregenerate person, that's a completely rational question to ask. And so, um, because sometimes I have trouble concentrating when I'm doing a lesson, I decided to spend some of my time Googling that question on the internet just to kind of see what answers are out there. Let's say somebody randomly Googles, why should I become a Christian? What are the answers that they're being given if they search for this online? So here's a few of the ones that I took away. Uh, one, you can have peace and joy that nothing can take away. Okay? Uh, two, your earthly and material needs will be taken care of. Three, uh, your life will become stable. Uh, four, you will always have something to do, which all of you in here are proof of. You woke up, not early in the morning because it's the second service, but you woke up and you made your way here today on Sunday. So that, you know, you have something to do. Uh, next, you'll have meaningful relationships. Okay, great. Uh, next, you will rule in the world to come. And then lastly, your life will have real purpose, right? Now, obviously, as I'm reading these out, everybody's kind of like gauging how true these are, right? Or how many of them are lacking critical context or whatever. But obviously, since I asked what I would consider to be a pretty self-serving question, it's not really surprising that the answers I receive back are pretty self-serving as well. Um, but honestly, I think if we were to really boil Christianity down, there is only one answer to the question of what do I get out of being a Christian? Why should I become a Christian? That answer is Christ. That is all the Christian ultimately has to offer the non-Christian, is Christ. That's the only thing that anybody has to gain by becoming a Christian, God made Christianity very simple because he knows we are not smart, right? It's about having Christ. It is about knowing him. And let's be honest, while I think theologically we can all agree that Christ is enough, uh, do we live that reality in our daily lives? Has that theological truth traveled from we rationally understand it to be true to it's a part of our activity, it's a part of our daily expression of faith, and even if it has, because hopefully I think some of us, that's true largely, right? Even if it has, I think we as the church have to constantly be on guard that we don't let other things slip into our theology of Christ. Humans are masters of overcomplicating the simple things of life. And a lot of this comes in a sense because, for better or worse, people sometimes try to sell Jesus the outside world. And so inevitably what we're going to do is we're going to try to frame Christianity in a way that's as positive to whatever this person's looking for at any one time, right? Like for example, the culture says, hey, you know, Christians are actually pretty dumb. Uh, we can't deal with reality. That's why we're here. We need a crutch of religion to stand on. And so in response, we go, hey, that doesn't feel good. So let's add more rationalism. Let's add more philosophy to our expression of faith. Or the world goes, listen, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You act just like everybody else out in the world anyway. So what's the point? To which we go, wow, all right, I guess we need to start adding rules and laws into our expression of faith. Or maybe it's just something as simple as going like, church is boring. You guys are boring. It's, 
too simple, it's too boring. And so we invite the culture to come and sit here. And instead of trying to worship God by the study of his word together, we're instead trying to entertain everybody. So the Colossian church that we're going to be studying, we're going to be in the book of Colossians today, they were under fire from false teaching. Uh, We're never told exactly what that false teaching is, but based on the arguments that Paul's making throughout this book, to counter it, we can know a few things about it. First, it had an element of philosophy in it. Secondly, it had an element of legalism in it. Uh, Thirdly, it had an element of mysticism and possibly even worship of angels as a part of it. And lastly, it had an element of asceticism, which if you're not familiar with what that means, it's essentially you strip all the fluff out of your life, you eat gruel, you sleep on a stone floor, like you feel you make your life as simple and as, and as basic as possible, you're doing better, right? That's, that's essentially asceticism. So today we're going to take a look at a little bit of that struggle that was happening in Colossae. So I'm going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 2. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As therefore you have, excuse me, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for just your incredible kindness to us, Lord, that we, uh, we deserve only condemnation and wrath, Lord, and that you freely offer us forgiveness, you offer us grace, you offer us all the riches that are to be found in you, Lord. And so we just thank you for just what an incredible kindness your gospel is, that we can be saved, Lord. And so we just want to offer this time up to you as an act of worship, Lord. We wish to know you better. So we just pray, Lord, that you will prepare our hearts, prepare our ears to hear, Lord, what you have for us, and just help us to really take it in, Lord, the wisdom here. Lord, I just pray that this whole time today will just be an act of worship to you, Lord. You are worthy of our time, and so we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to meet together as your people, and we just say these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. So let's... 
break it down verse by verse. We're going to start here in verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about the book of Colossians is that when Paul wrote the book, he had never been to Colossae. In fact, we don't know that he ever in his lifetime ever made it there. So this entire Colossian church sprung up um, completely organically without him being there. He'd never met these people at all. What had happened is one of his Ephesian converts, Epaphras, had ended up in Colossae and was ministering to the church there. And at some point in that ministry, he noticed that there was a certain false teaching that was starting to become prevalent within the church. And this apparently had made him worried enough that he decided to make the journey to Rome, where Paul at this time was arrested on house arrest in Rome. That is the only reason that Paul knew that there was a problem here. That's the only reason he even knew a church existed in Colossae. And yet, though he had never met these Christians, you can see that he had a deep love and concern for them. Now, his love and concern for this church is a lot like the love and concern that you have for your children, or if you don't have children, that your parents had for you, right? Meaning, it's unconditional, but it does come with certain goals. Um, What do I mean by this? Essentially, as a parent, I want my kids to amount to something, right? Um, Your parents will love you, regardless of the life choice you make, but they're not going to feel the same way about you uh, if you choose to, I don't know, let's say, go get your MBA or become a doctor versus sleep on their couch for 30 years and, and do nothing with your life. Like, your parents will love you either way, but they will not feel the same way about you either. Their love comes with expectations and goals, and Paul here is the same with his churches and with the church in general. So moving on to verse 2 here. We're going to look at some of the expectations that Paul actually has for the churches. Okay, That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is a mouthful and a half, guys. I have read this verse, no kidding, while I'm preparing for this study 200 times maybe, and it's always, it's big. It's hard to understand, so we're going to go through it little bit by little bit and just really break it down, okay? So the first chunk, that their hearts may be encouraged. So heresy or any false teaching, one of the first things it does in a body is split believers apart, There becomes little groups, little cliques, little camps that form in a church. And it's a lot like I would liken it to getting a crack in the foundation of your house, right? What happens when you get a crack in your foundation? Moisture is let in. Mold, like a perfect environment for mold, starts to happen in there. And if it's left unattended, those cracks get bigger, they get more serious, to the point in which no matter how soundly the rest of the house on top of it is built, it's all going to start falling apart. And the longer it takes you 
to deal with the cracks in your foundation, the harder it is to fix them, if you even can. Some people obviously end up bulldozing the whole thing and starting it over. So that's a picture of what happens to a church when false teaching is let in the doors. Disunity starts to ripple through the body. People become little cliques with each other. Satan loves this because why? It's much easier to divide and conquer than it is to fight an entire body of believers that are unified. It's much easier for him to gobble you up if you're just in your own little clique by yourselves, hating on everybody else, right? So when the Bible speaks about the heart, right, it says their hearts may be encouraged. When the Bible talks about your heart, it doesn't mean it in the same way we do in a modern sense. Um, In this time, your heart was considered the center of your being. This is where your will and your intellect, the seat of your intellect, this is the core of who you are as a person, right? And the word for encouraged could also be translated as strengthen. So what Paul's saying here is he needs the church to strengthen themselves at their core. Because when false teachings in a church, you are being attacked. You are under attack. Under attack. And so you have to be strengthening yourself. Next, he says he wants this church to be knit together in love. It's a very simple concept. All motivations, the core motivation of a Christian should be love. Okay, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, a very famous set of verses, very well-known set of verses, discusses love. I'm just going to discuss one verse here very quickly, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. Okay, let me read it real quick. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor... And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. If love is not the motivation for the things that you're doing, it doesn't matter how remarkable, it doesn't matter how correct those things are. They mean nothing if they're not motivated by love. So Paul wants this church to be knit together in love. He's very concerned about their unity. Because unity comes from one of two things. Coercion. Or love. Has anybody ever experienced unity via coercion? I'll share a little story from my own life. Um, I have had meetings at work where it becomes abundantly clear that a problem that we're discussing, the decision's already been made before the discussion has happened. And so it becomes very clear during the course of this meeting that what you have to say doesn't matter. The problems that you think are happening aren't going to be taken into consideration because the decision's already made and that's it. That's extraordinarily disheartening. Um, I have had the privilege in the past of serving as an elder here at the church and one of the things that really impressed me when Pastor Dan took me aside to kind of explain what is the role of an elder in this body, he mentioned that one of the things that was most important to him is that we are a check on the pastor. An elder is a check on the pastor. He understood human nature well enough to know the danger of surrounding yourself with a bunch of yes men. In a business setting, like is my main experience here, 
the consequences of having that sort of culture in a business means that your department underperforms or maybe your turnover increases, right? People are quitting and they're leaving. Uh, possibly mistakes that are happening are compounded because everybody's too afraid to bring them up or knows it doesn't matter anyways. Uh, maybe they just stop caring about doing a good job. Those are all terrible consequences. But in a business sense, they're all very material consequences. In a church, that same attitude of coerced unity has eternal consequences that are just as negative. So it's much more important in a church that our unity be motivated by our love for one another. Okay? We're going to quickly jump over to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. We just studied this last year. Pastor Dan did the book of 1 John. But this verse I love because I think it encapsulates this truth so well. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. If you love God, you will love those that he has begotten, you and me, right? Very clear. So um, unity is not just about love, though. It is also about truth. Uh, without truth, there is no unity, right? The foundation that you're building your unity on, if it's a lie, is sinking sand. It is going to be dead and gone, the first sign of trouble. And so in the Colossian church, they were living through that time of division and turmoil. We know this because Epaphras was concerned enough about what was happening that he was willing to make the trip to Rome to come and get help from Paul. Ultimately, the lies of the enemy always result in the same thing, right? John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And what does Christ say to that? He says immediately after, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. That is, those are the two things, those are the two paths you can go down. Steal, kill, and destroy, or life and that more abundantly. So, unity comes from love, but it also comes from growing together in God's truth. I don't know if any of you guys have had this. Hopefully you have had this experience. Um, I find it's always easier to do in like a smaller Bible study setting where you have a group of people, 10, maybe even 20 people, right? And you're all just kind of doing life together. You're reading the same verses. You're discussing it with one another. You're just sharing like, man, this really excited me about these verses or this is you know, what God really showed me. And then just having that exchange of information and the sort of you know, camaraderie, the love, the fellowship that that kind of activity builds. That, it's all based on growing in God's truth together. Hopefully, that's part of the reason that we're all here today right now when there's a Super Bowl going on here in a few hours. That we actually want to have that with one another. This is about worshiping our God and growing closer together as his people. Hopefully that's our goal here. The next chunk of this section, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. That uh, phrase is kind of confusing to me, even as I read it for the one millionth time. But let me just break it down for you very quickly. 
What Paul's saying is essentially, I want you to experience all of the riches that are available to you when you're solid and assured of what you have. It is very hard for a believer to claim these things for yourself and to enjoy them if you're not even sure that they belong to you, if they're not even sure that they're yours. And so this is Paul's heart for these people. There are two main reasons, in my view, that Christians lack assurance. The first is that they are unconvinced about the character of God and don't really know if he's as good and loving as he's portrayed or that his people tell them they are, right? So you're unconvinced about the character of God. Or two, maybe you just lack full assurance of your salvation and you wonder if your Christian walk is even real. Is this actually a thing or am I just fooling myself? So... Obviously, assurance is a huge problem in the church because everything that comes after it, your walk in general, kind of depends on it in a really real way. And so, how do we get that assurance? Um, This entire section of scripture is really about stripping all the excess from our religious observance and just getting to the core truth that God laid out for us. So let me give you two revolutionary ideas for how to get assurance. First, you pray for it. Praying for assurance acknowledges the source of that assurance. Our assurance is something that God gives us. Okay, So we pray for him and we ask for it. Two, you read his word. As I said, very revolutionary. Pray, read the Bible, great. When Paul says here, he says the full assurance of understanding. Okay, So to get that understanding you should read the thing that teaches you about what you're trying to understand. That's as simple as I think God makes everything. Next, Paul talks about to the mystery, to the knowledge, excuse me, of the mystery of God. The term mystery of God is used in a few different ways in the New Testament, but in this particular instance, Paul's using the term regarding the character and the person of God, which is something that we can only know or we cannot know unless it is revealed by him. Okay, And that's important because at this point, the Colossian church is being infiltrated by people trying to bring false teachings into the church. And their primary motivation is to convince the believers that Christ isn't enough and that there are additional things required from believers in order to have a good standing with God. And for those of you who were here last week when Pastor Dan was looking through Galatians 4, the most important part is they are the ones that can give it to you. Right? What did, what did we study in Galatians 4 last week? They want you to be zealous for them. That's what Paul's telling the Galatian church about the Judaizers. They want you ultimately to be zealous for them. These Colossian teachers were no different. At the end of the day, it was about building themselves up, making themselves into something great at the expense of Christ. So the next part of this verse, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Every false teaching ultimately comes down to attacking the deity Jesus Christ. You will never see a false teaching on the planet that gets Christ correct and then aberrates elsewhere. They all have to 
throw Christ into doubt. He's the Archangel Michael. He's the brother of Lucifer. He's just a man who obtained the Christ consciousness. Right? These are all things that are taught in other religious settings. Gnosticism especially was popular during the time that Paul's writing about, and they especially operated by claiming higher knowledge. Um, Christ was essentially just the cover charge to get you on the ladder, and then you had to continuously gain new knowledge to climb that ladder, and you didn't actually receive salvation until you got to the top of it. That was what the Gnostics taught, and obviously they were the ones who would be supplying you with that knowledge as soon as you were worthy of it. So what Paul's doing here in this verse, when he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he's combating that fact directly and saying that the highest mystery is God and Christ, and anyone who attempts to tell you otherwise is a false teacher. There's nothing above them, guys. That's it. So what does it mean when Paul says that they're hidden, that all these treasures and wisdom are hidden in the Father and of Christ. This does not mean that God is like holding stuff back from us as believers. It literally just means if you are not a believer, they're hidden. If you are a believer, everything is made available to you. So they're only hidden from people who are not Christians. And the last piece that I want to go through on this section because I'm a nerd and I'm indulging myself, is when Paul said that this wisdom is hidden in Christ, the word for hidden he used in Greek is apocryphos. Why does that matter? Let me read you a commentary discussing this. His very use of that word is a blow aimed at the Gnostics. Gnostics believed that a great mass of elaborate knowledge was necessary for salvation, that knowledge they set down in their books, which they called apocryphos, because they were barred to the ordinary man. You had to be a upper-level mega genius Gnostic in order to gain access to these books. And Paul is very clearly saying with his word choice here that real wisdom is not hidden in secret books, but deposited in Jesus Christ so that all believers can access it. So that's how we know Gnosticism was a part of whatever was going on here. Moving on to verses 4 and 5. Starting with verse 4. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. What can we discern about false teaching based on this verse? Understand that the words and the arguments of false teachers will be persuasive. I think in popular culture, we kind of have a vision of like the devil, um, especially if your name's Sam Smith, that he's red-skinned, horned, he's got goat legs, pitchfork, forktail, all that stuff. But what does the Bible say about Satan? He comes as an angel of light. He's not going to do the stereotypical thing. So for us, we think like, oh, I'm so smart. I'm going to be able to see this false teaching from far off. I'll be able to spot it a mile away, no problem. But what Paul's saying here is that actually false teaching is often very persuasive. 
And so, I mean, let's just look at the very first uh, false teaching that was given, right? Eve was tricked by the serpent. And in Genesis 3.6, we see sort of the culmination of that whole item. So Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. A lie had been given. It was wrapped in a lot of very spiritual language. She saw the target with her own eyes, convinced herself, no, this is actually great. This is beautiful. This is awesome. I love being wise. Who doesn't love being wise? I should totally do this. That is what false teaching will do. Verse 5. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Basically, despite your problems, I'm glad you're hanging in there. And these guys were actually still hanging in there. Paul uses two words here in the Greek. They're both military terms. One for order, the other for steadfastness. Order, Greek word takis, which is a single file line of soldiers. So the idea being translated here is that they are like those old-timey battles. They've got their battle lines drawn, and they haven't broken yet. They're still a single file. Nobody's broken through yet. They're still holding firm. And then steadfastness is the Greek word stereoma, which speaks of a solid front of soldiers that is bracing themselves for a charge. If false teaching is in your church, you are in a battle. These Colossians, while this was taking hold, they hadn't broken yet. They hadn't succumbed to it yet. And that was very positive. Moving on to verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Okay, verse 6, we'll take first. So, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So essentially, if you have that settled confidence in Christ, then keep going. There is no hidden knowledge, extra knowledge. There's no other philosophy that's going to change your understanding that you already know. How many times in the letters in the New Testament does Paul say, like, come back to what you were first taught. Come back to your first love. Like in Galatians as well, that's a huge that's a huge uh, theme. And we also know that walking with Christ is more than just believing the right things, right? It is about our relationship with him, walking with him, patterning our lives after him. He walked in love, so we walk in love. He walked in wisdom, so we walk in wisdom. He walked in holiness, so we walk in holiness. That's always our goal, to walk with him in the life that he led. So moving on to verse 7. I'm just going to quickly break down these four things Paul points out and talk about how they relate to our lives as Christians. Rooted. It implies that we have already been rooted. The Christian is deep-rooted in Christ. All of our nutrients, if you think of it as a plant, all of our nutrients are coming from him. He is sustaining us. He's keeping us going. To built up you are currently being built up in Christ, but you are only being built up when you walk with him. It is very hard for God to build you up in Christ when you're busy heading the opposite direction, right? 
It's like you're not even there for him to get. Third, established in the faith. So as God builds you up, your settled conviction about Christ is going to grow. And then as God shows himself to be continually faithful, your understanding is going to deepen and grow stronger. And that's going to allow you to confidently claim more and more of the promises he has for you as you two walk together. And lastly, abounding in it with thanksgiving. This verse, or this last abounding in it with thanksgiving, is the only part of this verse that was written in the Greek active voice. Now, I'm really sorry, I'm hitting you with a lot of this, I apologize. Uh, But the reason that I want to point that out, the reason that I think that it's important is because it communicates something to us that I think is kind of neat. When something's in the Greek active voice, what it means is that the person being referenced is the person who is causing that action to happen. So what does this mean for this verse? Uh, None of the rest of it is in the active voice. So being rooted, we're not causing ourselves to be rooted. Being built up, we are not causing ourselves to be built up. Being established in the faith, that's not something we're generating. God is doing all of that on our behalf. There is one thing in this verse that we are causing to happen. Abounding in it in thanksgiving. The life attitude of a Christian should be thanksgiving. The natural byproduct of what God is doing in our lives is going to be an increasing amount of thanksgiving from us towards him for it. We are thankful to him for what he does for us. Moving on to verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay? The English word philosophy that we're going to get into right now is a transliteration of the Greek word philosophia, which means we basically just stole the pronunciation whole cloth, anglicized it. But the Greek word means literally the love of human wisdom. Can anybody already see a problem with adding philosophy to Christ here? It is ultimately the effort of man to determine the core causes of reality, what caused everything, why it is what it is, where it's going, and what its intended purpose is. Humans throughout history have given radically different and often contradictory answers to the meaning of life because ultimately philosophy is an exercise in frustration because it is an unregenerate mind trying to determine ultimate truth without the help of God. Not going to be possible. So he says here, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. The phrase, and to cheat you, let me give you some additional kind of context here, is the Greek word sulagogeo. That's two words in Greek slapped together. Sula, which means booty or treasure, spoils, and gogeo, which means to carry off. So essentially, it referred to the carrying off of captives or spoils of war, right? So the image Paul's trying to present here is that you're being kidnapped by philosophy. What happens when you're kidnapped? You're held against your will in bondage. This is what trying to add philosophy to your Christian walk is going to do for you. It's going to put you back in bondage. Um, Typically, we we study the New King James Version here. But I want to share with you Galatians 5.1 written in 
the New American Standard, which is the one that I study out of usually. Galatians 5.1 in the New American Standard Version says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ set us free, guys. Don't shackle yourselves. Don't shackle yourselves again to all these things that you escaped from when Christ saved you. Because ultimately, when you try to add something to Christ, when you're looking for something to make up for his supposed lack, ultimately, that's what happens is you shackle yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Okay? Or as John Calvin wrote, those who are not satisfied with Christ are exposed to all fallacies and deceptions. Okay? So through philosophy and empty deceit. So empty deceit and philosophy, Paul is equating the two of them together. The word for deceit here is an interesting one because it originally, before it meant deceit, it meant fishhook. Can you guys see the picture being, being made here? I don't know if it's illegal for anybody but Pastor Dan to make a fishing analogy from this pulpit, but I'm going to try to make one real quick. Um, yeah, a fish hook. So you're fish swimming along. You see this beautiful, delicious-looking food floating around just waiting for you to grab it. You walk up, you put your mouth around it, and you're like, oh, this is so good, and then what? Oh, this wasn't as good as I thought. Next thing you know, you got something in your face. You're being pulled up on shore. Bad times. That is what deceit means here. It looks like good food, but what hides behind it is devastating. That is what Paul is equating here, cheating you through philosophy. Human philosophy comes from two sources. One, the tradition of man. Biblically, we see this very clearly in the way that the Jews received Jesus, right? They had been given the law. They'd been given the prophets. They were God's chosen people. And throughout history, they began to stray further and further from that truth. In fact, in Jesus' day, most of the teachers, most of the rabbis, didn't study the Torah as much as they studied their preferred rabbi's teachings that they supposedly studied from the Torah or also their preferred rabbi's teachings and so on and so forth. To the point in which their traditions had built up to the point when their Messiah showed up, they didn't recognize him. In fact, they called him a blasphemer. And ultimately, they had him killed. Today we have that same we have that same uh, picture to a certain extent in the Catholic Church. Catholicism teaches about sacred tradition that is on par with the scriptures for knowing how to live a Christian life. And that can be very dangerous, obviously. So man's philosophies Here are some hallmarks of what man's philosophies ultimately boil down to. One, actions are more important than intent. doesn't matter why you're doing what you're doing. Just do the right things. Two, blind obedience is encouraged. Again, doesn't matter. Just do it. That's what you're supposed to do. Nothing else matters. And then third, the better you do, the better you are. You can see how all of those things conflict with what Christ teaches Let me just quickly read one of the most famous philosophers that's ever lived, Voltaire. By far, in a country, France, that had a million philosophers, he was probably the most famous. And he was also called the godfather of what we call the Enlightenment, right? the so-called Enlightenment. Let me tell you, in a letter that he wrote to Frederick II, who was the king of Prussia, here's how he felt about religion. Okay? 
specifically Christianity. Okay? The Christian religion is assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected this world. Your majesty will do the human race an eternal service by extirpating this infamous superstition. I do not say among the rabble who are not worthy of being enlightened and who are apt for every yoke. I say among honest people, among men who think, and among those who wish to think, my one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise, the finest and most respectable which the human mind can point out. This is the man who is considered the godfather of the Enlightenment that we hold so highly in this culture. So that's the philosophy, the prince, excuse me, the traditions of man. Next, the basic principles of the world. Basic principles here means baby talk, essentially. Um, If you ask most human philosophers, they will tell you that Christianity is stupid, it's simplistic, it's boring, it doesn't mean anything, and that they have this higher knowledge. But Paul's saying here is that their philosophy is according to the basic principles of the world, the most basic, the baby talk, the ABCs of the universe. We have the word of God. And I don't know that you get much higher than that, right guys? And lastly, not according to Christ, most importantly. Anything that diminishes Jesus Christ is a false gospel. It is not good news, it is not wisdom, it is just foolishness. Simple and straightforward. So let's wrap up with verses 9 and 10. And I will ask the uh, worship team to come back up here. Verses 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Just as Christ is completely divine, is utterly divine, so are we utterly complete in him. There's nothing else we need if we have Christ, guys. Human wisdom adds nothing to what has already been revealed in Christ. So to help you understand a little better what what this verse means, Paul uses the same Greek word here twice. Okay, pleroma. Let me read this again. He is, Christ is the pleroma of God, and we are the pleroma in him. It's the same word. God is passing himself to us through Christ. You are complete in him. Again, this is in perfect tense in the Greek, meaning it's now and forever. You are complete in him. Do you have a sense of that completeness in your life? I hope so, Christian. I hope so. So ultimately, while man's philosophy might offer some things that are useful for living in this world, it doesn't do anything to make up for our lack of Christ. And it doesn't add anything to our relationship with him. In not having Christ, you have nothing. In having Christ, you have everything. So to go back to the question again at the beginning of this message, what do we have to offer? I cannot come up here and tell you that if you become a Christian, that your life will get better, that your relationships will heal, that your body will be healed, that you will be financially stable. All I can promise you is Christ. But... Luckily for us, Christ is everything. (laughs) So let's pray together and 
close out our time with a time of worship. Father, I just thank you so much for your people. I just thank you how you move individually in every one of our lives, Lord. How you're always calling us to yourself, Lord. Uh, inviting us to walk deeper with you, Lord. Please give us feet to follow you on that path, Lord. Help us to just push out the distractions that the world throws in our way, the things that we do instead of that which we know is right, Lord. Thank you. Help us to count it all loss for your sake, Lord. Help us to just be people completely motivated by our desire to bring you glory, Lord. And so we thank you that everything you ask of us, Lord, you pay back a hundredfold. Help us to keep that in mind, Lord, as we count the cost of our lives. So thank you. We just pray that you'll just bless us on our going out today. And we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.